0: Welcome to the Legacy Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message from Pastor Tommy Miller. For more information about Legacy Church, please visit us online at www.legacychurchclm.org. We are going to examine something that's pretty, I, I would say, foreign in most of our concepts of life. When it comes to just how society and culture works, but Jesus came to be countercultural. He came to show us what God's original design was. Jesus himself in the flesh was the first fruit. And he came to this planet to show us what God's intention for humanity looked like. So, without sounding too scandalous, the church cannot put Jesus on a pedestal that he never desired to be on. He's confident in himself being the King of Kings. He's confident being the Lord of Lords. But the message that he preached brought you into a place in him so that everything he is, so are you, and nothing that he's not, you aren't. Does that make sense? So a lot of times we say things like, well, he's God. And he's saying, well, you're just like me. His intention was to never, to come to this planet for 33 and a half years, live a life that you couldn't touch, and then you'd be condemned by the walk that he walked. The Bible says that if you believe in Jesus, you ought walk just as he walked. And believe it or not, Jesus didn't agree with that. He said, greater works than these you will do because I go to my Father. So it's It's important that we put the life of Jesus in perspective as good theology, as the seed of Genesis in God's perfect design. Everybody following me so far? So I want to talk very specifically about something that we get to witness in the life of Jesus that you and I are supposed to be able to walk freely in. This message will not condemn you by any sort, but it will examine something in you to show you that what you've been trying to do through behavior modification and better thinking and better choices, God actually already did by sending His own Son so that you could walk in Him just as He walked. All right? So I want to show you something in Matthew 14. We'll dive off from there. Matthew chapter 14, verse 1 says this. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had said to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitudes because they counted him as a prophet." But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Therefore, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head on a platter. And the king was sorry, nevertheless, because of the oath and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. Then the disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. Okay, that's not where we're going to stop, so keep your finger in that chapter. But what I do want to show you is this. Mary. And Elizabeth were pregnant with Jesus and John at the same time. John the Baptist actually became familiar with Jesus in utero. When Mary walked into the room that Elizabeth was standing in, the baby in Elizabeth's womb leapt and was filled with the Holy Spirit. So it not only became close through ministry, it was close in utero with his cousin Jesus. So oftentimes, that pedestal that we place Jesus on makes us think that He can't relate to us. It puts Him in a position where He's untouchable, where He's untraceable, and He's just simply out of our league. You following me? So please understand that if your cousin, your ministry partner, your greatest supporter, and your predecessor now was murdered because of a selfish woman and a stupid man, you would probably have hate and vengeance and pain and grieving rising up in your heart by now. Am I right? Okay. So we have the opportunity now through the Spirit-inspired Word to look into Jesus' life and His thoughts. So after Jesus learns of the death of His cousin, it says this, When Jesus heard it, He departed from there by boat to a deserted place by Himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude and he was moved with compassion for them and healed all their sick. Does anybody see why that sounds foreign? Okay? Because in today's church, we celebrate selfish rest. We celebrate me time. We celebrate time away from people because, oh my God, they're such a pain, right? Jesus just receives probably some of the worst news that he'll ever hear. Few people other than John were as close to Jesus or as big of admirers of Jesus than John the Baptist. So Jesus does go to get away for a minute, but wouldn't you know it that the people are so consumed with themselves that they go to Jesus still in the midst of his grief to have their needs met. What am I trying to say? We as the church can never be selfish and significant. We as the church can never be introspective and Christ-like. The moment that we make this life about our comfort, our satisfaction, and our wholeness, and not about what He has done to provide all of those things for us, then we will miss the mark in displaying Jesus to the world. Now, I told you this message isn't going to condemn you. That's not the intention. It can only condemn you. If you see Jesus' life, look at yours and say, Oh, shucks. But when you understand that Jesus' life was a vicarious life for you to enter into rather than one to emulate, then you'll see that you don't have to be led by selfishness and introspection. Let me tell you where this word came from and why it's being preached this morning. Because it is extremely important for us to understand the aspect of the kingdom that teaches dominion, authority, identity, and destiny. Would you agree? But that message becomes extremely toxic if you don't look at the way Jesus leveraged those things to be a supreme king and a perfect ruler. Everybody thinks poor Jesus came to this planet and took off his crown. No, Jesus showed us what a king was supposed to look like. He walked his royalty... He had all the resources and everything that he needed for life and godliness. When somebody came to him with a need, he didn't say, let me call the board of directors. He met it. Jesus lived such a scandalous life because he wasn't afraid of losing something that he wanted. He hated his own life unto death. Do you understand this? We looked this up at uh, Kata's last night. Did you know that, that Persian history... You understand that not all of Jesus' life is in the Bible, right? It wasn't day by day. It was 33 and a half years long. And I mean, that's, that's really a short synopsis of, of what it actually said. I think the end of one of the gospel writers, he said, if we actually recorded everything that Jesus did, all of the books in the world couldn't contain it. Okay, so you know about the three wise men that came to visit Jesus in the inn, right? Or in, in the manger, History says that there were three wise men, 300 kings in a caravan, an army that actually ushered those things in. Jesus received about four million US dollars from each one of those 303 humans. You following me? Jesus wasn't a poor baby in a manger. Jesus was a very rich baby that could have bought the inn. Okay? He chose as the king of the world to make himself of no reputation. He wasn't a product of his poor little circumstance. He was absolutely wealthy. But what you don't see in his life is this wealth being used to satisfy an orphan spirit. This wealth was being used to meet the needs of suffering people. That's what a good king does. The hurt of the people become the pain of the king. And now he uses his endless resources to be able to solve the problems that everyone else has. He lived in a consistent state of selflessness. As a matter of fact, listen, I don't don't want to mess up our our, our leadership vetting system by any means, but let me tell you how Jesus chose leaders. Jesus was a multi-billionaire. He got 12 apostles, and he actually history says that he gave the money that he was born with to Joseph of Arimathea. Until he became of age and then joseph of arimathea would have taken that money multiplied it and gave it back to him because he was a good businessman He was extremely wealthy So all the money that he received from those 303 humans That had an army guarding it actually was multiplied and invested. So he was a multi-billionaire And then he takes his multi-billions on the road with him and still said the son of man has no place to lay his head Why because it was more needful for the needy that he traveled What's more important to him? Having a place to lay his head or making sure that other people are, have their needs met? That's Jesus, okay? So Jesus has one of his 12 disciples that has a theft problem and he's money motivated. As a matter of fact, he turned the Savior over for 30 shekels when the Savior that he served was abundantly wealthy. Do you know what this man also got the, the opportunity to call himself? Judas, Jesus' treasurer. What kind of selfless confidence does it take to put the only thief in the group in charge of the money bag? It takes somebody that understands that their wealth has come from their father and no man can take it. That no matter what kind of opinion he has of this man. He can't allow his opinion to hurt him. Man, you know how hard it is when somebody comes up like, I want to be in leadership. And you're like, but you're still... Jesus is like, you're a thief. You should, you should be in charge of the money. What? It's insanity. But what kind of selfless confidence in a human does it take to be able to make a decision like that? You can't steal what my dad gave me. Do you know that in 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 a human we feel like generosity is a good decision? Generosity isn't a good decision, it's Christ like. And the only way you can be generous is to also be selfless. Because Jesus wasn't the kind of giver that gave you what he had left. Jesus surrendered all of his rights to give you yours. Jesus would have let his mortgage go to make sure that you have somewhere to stay. That's the kind of generous man that Jesus was. Now, now, like I said, this message can't condemn you if you understand the tone. Because if you think you're just supposed to make better decisions then you'll just be giving grudgingly which is also something and I'm not talking about just money I mean your time, your schedule and people try to get your attention you're just worried about the next place that you're going all selfishness is based out of fear all of it if I give money where will I get more if I give time how will I accomplish my goals if I, if I give compassion what if they continue to do the thing that offends me I'm going to say that one one more time I've seen so many spouses that are afraid to uh, excuse me forgive their spouse because they're afraid that their forgiveness continues to permit it. Your forgiveness is the only thing that will cover and transform them. But it's selfishness to think I don't want to be offended by their actions anymore so I will use my anger and lack of mercy to control them. It's all out of fear. It's all out of self-preservation. So, all right. Jesus lived this life. I mean, just, just... Can you put yourself in his shoes? Closest family member dies, and you've got a ministry meeting tonight. People need you. They don't care about your time. They don't care about your money. They don't care what you have the date night with your wife. They don't care, and they shouldn't care. It's ridiculous of you to think that they should. They're lost. You're not. You're found, you're whole, you're healed. Now everything that you've been freely given, you should freely give away. The only reason you don't give it away is you're afraid you'll never have more. Follow me? Is it good? It's good. I know it's good. I wouldn't say it. I don't say bad stuff. Okay. I want to look at Jesus. I want to look at Genesis. Can we look at Genesis real quick? Chapter three ish. Let's go three. For you, new folks, it's right after Matthew. We'll see you in a half hour. Oh, how about verse five? Is that ringing going away? Is it tolerable? Is it all right? That's okay. Okay, let's just start in verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field that the that the Lord God made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, God said, Don't eat it or touch it or you'll die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You won't surely die. God knows that the day that you eat the tree, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eye, and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, gave to her husband that was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open; They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and covered themselves. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the the garden in the cool of the day. Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. Among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to Adam and said, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid. I was naked, so I hid. He said, Who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you that you should not eat? Now, Genesis, Aaron mentioned when he first started that God always starts at the end. So when God has an intention, he always builds something in a seed. Genesis 1 and 2 are the seed of the kingdom. When Genesis is full grown, you see humans that look like God and you see an earth that looks like heaven. That's the intended destiny of humanity and creation. So what we see in Genesis is what we're supposed to be experiencing now and supposed to be creating and cultivating so that we see God's seed come to fruition. But now what we see in, in Genesis chapter 3 is that there was a perversion of the original design, but unlike most common teaching, the fruit itself was not inherently bad. We think that they ate of the fruit and then everything went to hell in a handbasket, when in fact that's not what happened. Creation will forever be a reflection of the humans that have dominion over it. Okay? So when we ask, oh, why is God letting this happen? He's not. The church is. We can forgive Him now and blame you. (laughs) But what we see here is that Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They're still in the garden, but now their perspective has shifted and it becomes both selfish and introspective. Meaning they're self-preserving and they're self-judging. That was the mindset that it took to eat of that tree. So please understand, they didn't eat the tree and everything fell apart. They ate the tree, developed a selfish mindset, and because they were selfish, everything else suffered. That's what happened to creation. That's why things are the way they are. So what do we see? The moment you become selfish, you start to live at the expense of something else. People and circumstances. The moment that Eve believed that she wasn't made in the image of God, she started looking for things outside of herself to appease something that God had already satisfied. That's where addiction comes from. That's where destination-based Christianity comes from. That's where this terrible lie that I'll be happy when comes from. Because satisfaction comes from the inside out. If you can't... What did we say last week? If your circumstance has to change for you to be free, then you're not free. That's the truth. The gospel sets you free. It says, "...who the Son sets free is free indeed. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty." If you need something to change, move, receive something or somebody to compliment you to feel good, that is bondage. And that's not how God intended for you to live. So the moment that you think something outside of you needs to satisfy you because you've turned selfish and introspective, now you start living at the expense of other humans instead of for their profit. First thing, Adam, what happened? That chick you gave me. It was her idea. She did it, right? Adam would have never lived at Eve's expense, created to be her covering. And then he says, Eve, what about you? He's like, where'd the snake go? The snake made me do it. They start blaming things on the outside instead of taking the truth of God and applying it to the inside. Okay, so two trees in the middle of the garden, right? Tree of life, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Please understand, the tree of life is good. How do we know? The Bible says it's good. Jesus is the tree of life. So you've got two, two choices. That's it. Shanda said this on the way home from Kaddai's last night. She's like, we could preach one message. And if everybody would get this one message, everything else would change. The moment that you partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you have a perspective that now is different than God's. That's it. The Bible says there's one good. There's only one good. So you now know good. That means you know God. If you know God, you're blameless, perfect, spotless, and holy. Your needs are met. You live in pleasure that satisfies and it doesn't take anybody's opinion or any circumstantial change to set you free from that. But now you have a perspective that differs from God because now you have the knowledge of good and evil. So now Eve looks down and she's like, what's he have that I don't? Well, I'm embarrassed because I'm different, so I'm going to find me some fig leaves and cover it off. And then Adam's like, what do I got that she's missing? There must be something wrong with me, right? We start to be ashamed of our uniqueness. We want to be like everybody else. We live a life of comparison. And we start turning inward and judging ourselves, and the life turns into a poor me cycle that never gets us anywhere. If selfishness and introspection would leave the church, the church would be perfect. Because it would no longer be pompous enough to think that its opinion matters more than God's. Right? Selfishness, introspection. Those were the fruits of the knowledge of good and evil. If you take away selfishness and introspection. Selfishness is where you put your needs above someone else's. Introspection is where you're looking inward to examine yourself, your motives. And now you have a perspective that's different than God's. Because Adam and Eve were both naked when they were created. And that wasn't a problem to them until they developed a perspective different than God's. And we all think that, Adam, where are you? Like he's coming to yell at him. He's coming to hang out how can you tell? He's like, Adam, where are you? He's like, oh, I hid. He said, why'd you hide? I'm naked. Who said? You ate the tree, didn't you? See, God, by looking around, couldn't even see the results of the eaten fruit because it was something that happened on the inside. Destination-based Christianity will steal the joy that God's trying to give you right now. You'll be happy when you make a hundred a year. You'll be happy when your spouse stops being so stupid. Amen, (laughs) pastor. But the fact is, if any of those needs are met because of your dissatisfaction, your father knows you well enough to know that that will actually accelerate your orphan spirit. And when you get to the next level, you'll just want more. It's been proven by science and it's been proven in case studies that it doesn't matter how much money you make, how many partners you sleep with, and how many toys you buy. It doesn't bring happiness. As a matter of fact, one of the most devastating pieces of news that you'll learn is that when things change, you still won't be happy. If if you look at the, the, the statistics regarding suicide, suicide is reserved for wealthy to high middle class Caucasian people. Because they've been taught in this, this principle called the American Dream. That ringing's getting a little worse, gents. The American dream is a myth, and it doesn't make, matter if you make 30,000, 300,000 or three million a year until your heart's settled inside of him, nothing outside of him will ever appease it. Good stuff. I've got a few points, and then we'll get to uh, throwing folks in this little lake back here. We baptized nine people last month. That's awesome. All right. I want to show you a list of wonderful, wonderful points, if I can find them. Quickly, to understand your Bible, Genesis 1 and 2 are the seat of the kingdom, right? Genesis 3 is what brought the fall of the kingdom. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John was the restoration of the kingdom. Acts on is the effects of the kingdom. So the thing is, you can't use any of them as a baseline for what you should be experiencing because the kingdom is ever increasing, which means Acts should be our floor, not our ceiling. Our floor. So, one of the things that I want to point out is, how many of you guys are familiar with Ananias and Sapphira? Nobody likes to talk about that, right? Holy Spirit killed them. Have you ever heard anybody use Ananias and Sapphira during an offering teaching? <laughs> it gets awkward like that, like super fast. So, but if we understand Anani- Ananias and Sapphira in context, okay? So Acts chapter 2 comes. The resurrection of Jesus has now embodied in humans. So because they were fallen and they were sons of Adam, none of them can actually be selfless because the flesh itself is self-seeking. So now the resurrection of Jesus comes and embodies itself in human beings. And for the first time, we have a group of people that are of like mind and one accord and completely selfless. So when a church experiences that culture and what God is able to do through a selfless culture, they don't want anybody to come in and ruin it for them. The end of Acts chapter 4 that says that they were all with one mind, one accord, that the, the foundations of the buildings that they were meeting in were shaking. Acts chapter 2, flames were on their head like best church service you'll ever go to. In the end of Acts chapter 4 says that there was this rich man named Joseph and he even sold everything that he had and gave all of the money to the apostles. Everybody else sold everything that they had, gave all the money to the apostles. That way everybody in the church was taken care of. So now they see the effects of a selfless and non-introspective community. They see one that looks like Jesus. And then Ananias and Sapphira come along, and they want to be part of the fun, but they don't want to be part of the sacrifice. Right, people? You hear me? They want to be part of the fun, but they don't want to be part of the sacrifice. So they sell a piece of land, they tell the church they sold it for 80, they actually sold it for 100, they keep 20 grand for themselves, just in case this thing doesn't pan out. Right? Peter, when he comes to him, even says, he said, that was your land. We didn't ask for your land. When you owned it, you could have done anything you wanted with it, right? They said, yep. They said, when you sold it, you could have did whatever you wanted with that money. They said, yep. He said, then why would you tell us that you sold it for 80 when you sold it for 100 and kept 20 for yourselves? That's fearful, that's selfish, that's introspective, and there's no room for it in our Christian community because we can't see God's character move in places that it's not on earth as it is in heaven. So he's like, Ananias, you know what this means, right? He pulls out his Holy Spirit pistol. (laughs) Ananias falls to the floor. Then his poor wife who got drugged into this thing too, a bunch of guys go bury Ananias, and they go to Sapphira. They're like, okay, we're going to ask you a question. Is it true that you sold the land for $80,000? She's like, well, husband said, yes, we sold it for eighty. It's like, you know what? You might not know this yet, but your husband's six foot deep for saying the same thing you just said. I actually hear the steps of the guys that buried him come, and they're going to bury you too. Bam! She falls to the floor too. If you haven't read that part, you think I'm lying. Holy Spirit killed them. I think it was because Peter asked him to, because he wasn't willing to cover their sin. But please understand that once a community, once a city witnesses the fruits of selflessness, it never wants to go back. It never wants to go back. Once you give up rights to your life, you'll never want to go back. Everything you're holding on to is the source of your frustration. Good stuff? What time is it? Okay. I don't know if I'm going to go any further than that. Okay. One thing. Stand with me. We'll be done after this. How many of you would like to experience joy and consistency in your spiritual walk? Okay. Joy and consistency are two of the things that actually lure people into the kingdom, and a lack of joy and consistency is as good as a repellent. If somebody says, I believe in Jesus, he meets all my needs, and they're not joyful and they're not consistent, you can't trust the Savior that they claim faith in. Right? David Barlock, I'd never forget. I think it was at Eriksville, and he said, I thought she laughing at me. <laughs> he said, I see all this, this all the time. Come to my church, it's great. <laughs> He's like, I'm not going to a sourpuss's church. If the joy of the Lord is your strength, then your Lord ain't very happy. You're not very strong. Joy and consistency. All right, let me read you something. Acts 20, 22 through 24 says, this is Paul. He says, I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem and I know the things that will happen to me there. The Holy Spirit testifies in every city saying that chains and tribulation await me. Okay, so most Westerners are waiting for things to get better. The Holy Spirit has prophesied to Paul that they're going to get worse. That contradicts the Western feel-good gospel because we only talk about authority, dominion, destiny. We don't talk about sacrifice and selflessness and suffering and death to self. We need to balance these things. We need to fish from the other side of the boat so that our dominion is used for their gain, so that our wealth is used to meet needs, so that death in us produces life in them. That's the gospel. So Paul says, I know. The Holy Spirit already told me that what my next few ministry trips are going to look like. Low offering, no fruit, and I'm going to get chained and beaten. Woo! Bring it on. No, we're like, that doesn't fit Jesus. Come on. Listen, this is what Paul says. But none of these things move me. Come on. He said, nor do I count my life dear to myself. I want to finish my race with joy in the ministry that I received from the Lord to testify of the grace of the gospel of God. So he says that tribulations don't move me and he says they don't move me because I want to be happy. You can't be dependent on a fallen world to make you happy. Heaven makes you happy. David said, restore to me the joy of my salvation it comes from the inside out and the moment you become selfish and introspective you start grasping for things that never satisfy let go of it and you'll like it lay it down at the altar you'll finally find pleasure in it it's those things man it's they're just little it's like well if I just had a little more time if I just had a little more money if you just had a little more faith everything would be fine everything would be fine Oh, boy. Selfishness and introspection are the opposite of the character of Jesus. It's not about making better decisions. It's not about choices this time. Sometimes it is. This time, it's about seeing his all-sufficiency and resting in what he's already accomplished on your behalf and stop grasping for straws. Nobody gets happy from the outside in. Nobody. Usually, the pursuit of happiness from the outside in leads to death. They always say too much of a good thing, there's no good thing. There's one good. And he lives in you. And he wants to bring life to your mortal body. He wants to he wants to quicken your spirit so that you experience heaven from the inside out. So that whether you're in a house or you're in a hut, whether you're rich or whether you're poor, whether you're sick or whether you're healed, the joy is immovable. If you have joy that can be stolen, you'll never be happy.